Your Bibles turn to Mark chapter 10. We're going to take a look at verses 17 to 31, uh, the story of the rich young ruler. It really kind of on the coattails of what Pastor Kirk mentioned last week, uh, one of the points anyway, with regard to thinking about our salvation and what Chris mentioned out of 2 Corinthians 13 there, evaluating ourselves. Really, uh, this is kind of what I want to touch on today out of uh, this section of Scripture. Uh, the rich young ruler is found here in Mark 10. It's also found in Matthew 19 and Luke 18. Uh, really, we're just going to deal with what we see here in the same story, but we're going to deal really strictly here in Mark chapter 10. And uh, as I uh, kind of been studying the passage and thinking about the passage, one of the things that keep, kept coming to mind is really this uh, this Bible track that I use uh, it's just a Bible track that says, Are You Going to Heaven? Uh, there's there's no perfect Bible track out there. Uh, but I really like this one because the, the the question on the front, Are You Going to Heaven? Uh, and then the inside cover, it says, Check below what you feel is the best basis for reaching heaven. And in that list, there's 17 things that are listed. And there are things like keeping the Ten Commandments, gifts to charity, doing my best, leading a good life, good works, trying to obey the golden rule, tithing and giving to the church, church membership, regular church attendance, prayers, fasting, baptism, uh, communion, born of Christian parents, confirmation, penance, and extreme unction. And the reason I like this, when you give this to people, it's amazing how many people will check multiple things in that list as reasons why they're going to heaven. And it's more amazing when you share with them that none of those things are a guarantee for you going to heaven. And they're stunned by that. And so uh, we're really going to see some of the same things as we go through this story of the rich young ruler today. We get a little glimpse of that same idea that somehow a person can work their way to heaven. That idea has been around for a long, long time. It's still around, and I'm pretty confident it's going to continue to stay around. And so it's something that we really have to deal with as Christians and something for us to think about in our own lives. Uh, Do we really think that maybe we have done something to please God and to earn salvation? So let's dive into the text and see what is here, and we'll kind of pick this apart uh, little by little. So Mark chapter 10 starting in verse 17, and I'll read through verse 31. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, Do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But at these words he was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he, he was one who owned much property. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. 
The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Look at them, Jesus said, With people it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last in the last first. As I, again, kind of went through the text, had studied through the text, uh, one of the things you always they always tell you in seminary to always try to make things into uh, imperatives, things you have to do, uh, points of application, so to speak. But as I went through this text, it really just seemed to, every step of the way, questions started popping into my head. And so that's what I want to share with you, really, is just these questions. These questions from these verses, and as you see in your the handout there, nine questions concerning conversion or nine questions concerning salvation, you could really say maybe nine questions to ask in evaluating whether or not you are saved, because all of these things are very relevant to whether or not a person is saved and how we view Christ and how we view someone actually moving on to be saved and on to heaven. And so we're just going to look at these questions one at a time, starting with that very first one there. Have you submitted yourself to the deity of Jesus Christ? And we see that in verses 17 and 18. Really starting in verse 17, we see, again, this young man runs up. Uh, he, he kneels before Jesus and he asks him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? We don't really know much about this young man. Uh, we know from the three gospel accounts that he's young, he's wealthy, and he's a ruler. Uh, possibly a ruler of a synagogue. But that's really all we know of this young man. We see here that he approaches Jesus in what would be a very uncustomary way. He's running to him, and then he's kneeling before him. Actions that would have been considered very undignified. Now, as we read the story, we kind of get the idea that maybe there's some humility there. Uh, maybe he has some reverence for Christ. He has the right attitude before Jesus. And he does ask a very good question. He does ask a great question. He wants to know how to inherit eternal life. That's what is on his heart or on his mind. Yet we know that the way he asks the question or what he says there really does display his works-based theology. He wants to know what he can do to inherit eternal life. And that's why I mentioned that Bible track, because that is what so many people think. They think there is something they can do to inherit eternal life. 
Jesus gets all of that. None of this goes by Jesus. Jesus understands where this young man is coming from. Again, it's a wonderful question to ask, and how does Jesus respond? He tells him, just pray this prayer, right? Sound familiar? Just pray this prayer. No, he doesn't. He doesn't say that. Jesus, instead, in his omniscience, he goes after this young man's heart. That's what he's trying to do. And it's a great example for us to think about when we evangelize. We want to go after a person's heart. Uh, we're, ne- we're never going to argue someone into the kingdom. It's just not going to happen. We want to go after their heart. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here when, in verse 18, he says, Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Just very important how Jesus is going after this. And and really, the first thing Jesus does is confront this young man about who Jesus really is. And for all of us, that is one of the huge things with regard to salvation is, is understanding who Jesus truly is. He challenges this young man's statement in a way that this young man must think about what he said and the intent behind what he said. Uh, Some people take it here that Jesus is actually denying his deity. There's no one good but God, but God alone. He's not denying his deity here. He's actually establishing it. He's establishing it in his response. No one is good except God alone. The good that is referenced there has to do with being perfect in substance and intent, being morally pure, being holy. And so what he's doing is he's challenging this man in a way that's saying, if you're going to come up to me and call me good, then you better be willing to admit that I and God are one in the same. That's what he's doing in his response. That is how he is challenging this young man. Jesus is way more than just some other teacher of the law who has an opinion on eternal life. He is the giver of eternal life. That's what he's wanting this young man to understand. It's like what we see in John 14:6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And he wants the young man to see that. He wants the young man to admit that. Certainly the young ruler needs to submit himself to the deity of Jesus Christ, and so do all of us. The question is, have we done that? Have we submitted ourselves to the deity of Jesus Christ? So first, Jesus confronts this ruler about who he is, And then secondly, he wants him to see his sin. He wants him to see his sin. And that brings us to question number two. Do you understand your moral depravity? Verse 19. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. 
It's here in verse 19 that Jesus is setting this young man's morality, his professed morality, we're going to see, he's setting this young man's morality up against the law. He does this to expose the young man's sin, to help him see his moral depravity, to help him see that he is lost. Again, when we think about evangelism, this is another important aspect to evangelizing others or witnessing to others. We want them to see their sin. We want them to know that they are lost. We want them to understand that they need to be found. That they are in a place that is not good. If a person doesn't know that they're lost, it becomes very difficult to have them see their need to be found. That's what we want to show them. That's why we set their morality up against the law. The law exposes a person's sin. It shows them that they're alienated from God. Not only are they alienated from God, they're condemned by God. They're under condemnation. And we want them to see that, to understand that the law shows us our need for a Savior. We see that in Galatians 3.24. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. That's what the law can do. And that section in Galatians is really at the end of a discussion about the law and faith, really kind of the continuation of what Gary had read this morning. In that whole section, it gives us the understanding that it's not the law that saves, but rather it is faith. This faith that was uh, put in place under the Abrahamic covenant. Not something new. goes all the way back to Genesis 12 and Genesis 15. That's the reference there. It's getting people to understand that we are depraved. We're not righteous. We're depraved. We have no righteousness. None. And that's what we see in Romans 3.10. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. No one can say that they're righteous. No one can say that they have any righteousness. Why does Jesus present the second half of the law to this young man? Why does he present the second half of the law for him to see his sin? Well, it's to get him to admit that he hasn't kept the law, right? He wants him to see that he has not kept the law, and he presents the second half of the law because, in most people's opinion, that would be the easiest part to keep. We're talking about the first half of the law, loving God, the second half of the law, loving neighbor. Uh, We can make a much better case for loving neighbor than we can for loving God. Much easier to do. Yet Jesus mentions these things again to get him to see his sin, to show him his sin. And this young ruler should have seen his depravity. Just like when we think about this, if this question were posed to us, we should see our depravity. Do these commandments glaringly Help us see our depravity. 
It should. It should for the rich young ruler, but how does the young ruler respond? Verse 20, And he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. He tries to justify himself. I do want to point out in verse 20, I think it's very interesting. And he said to him, Teacher, notice that the good is gone. It's no longer good teacher. It's just teacher. He is not willing to understand that Jesus is the Lord, that Jesus and God are one. Is this young man's statement prideful? Yes. Is his statement self-righteous? Yes. Is his statement absurd? Yes. Without question. Without question, he is trying to make Christ believe that he is self-righteous or that he has righteousness. Right, The question we have before us is, have you overestimated your righteousness? And certainly here this young man has overestimated his righteousness. Not only has he overstated his righteousness, but he's implying that he, ha- that he has some righteousness that is worthy of something. That Jesus should see his righteousness. That Jesus should respect his righteousness. That what he said is actually true when it's not. But because he believes it, Jesus should somehow accept it. And that's how we know that this young man has been deceived. He has deceived himself. Jeremiah 17.9, The heart is more deceitful than, than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? I mean, that's what he needs to understand. This young man needs to understand that his heart is deceiving him. He has no righteousness. He has none at all. And the idea that he has kept the commandments is silly. Certainly we could say that this rich young ruler is caught up in a legalistic, self-righteous religious system, which it was. There's no two ways about that. Uh, And that he has convinced himself that he has met the standards set forth by Jesus. But that's what people who think they can work their way to heaven always do. They think that somehow they have met some standard, but that standard is something they have contrived in their own mind. It's not a standard that comes forth from the Scriptures. It's a standard they have imposed upon themselves, and it's from a system that they are the ones that are dictating the standards. And so we have to understand that. Again, as we evangelize people, as we evaluate our own lives, as we see this in the story we have to understand what the standard really is. Unfortunately, this young man is refusing to look at the thoughts and intentions of his own heart, which Jesus is going to get to. But up to this point, he is refusing to look at the thoughts and intentions of his own heart. The rich young ruler needs to do this, and so do we. It's not enough to think that somehow our outward behavior um, solidifies what's going on inside of us. Many times those two things don't match. 
Uh, there are many people that put on <laughs> uh, kind of a great facade with regard to how they're living their life. And when you start digging and prodding, the things of the heart start coming out. And that's where it turns from good to ugly. And that's something we need to think about again in our own life. And that's something we see in the rich young ruler, but it's something we need to think about with regard to our own lives. If anyone thinks they're good enough, they are sadly mistaken. If anyone thinks they can do enough to be right with God, they are sadly mistaken. The unbeliever has no righteousness, none whatsoever. The believer only has righteousness because it was imputed to them by the grace of God. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, in that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Here we see the rich young ruler boasting about what he's done from his youth up. None of it true, but he's still boasting about what he has done supposedly to earn God's favor. Righteousness only comes to us once we are saved and only remains with us because of the grace of God. We have nothing to boast about, nothing whatsoever. The rich young ruler here overestimates his righteousness, but Jesus doesn't let him get away with it. And that's where we get to question number four. Have you seriously examined the cost of being a Christian? Verse 21. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. We need to make it clear right up front that Jesus is not saying or implying in any way that a person can do something to obtain eternal life. Again, Jesus' response here is his attempt to get this young man to see his sinfulness before God and to get him to repent. Again, this is getting more into the heart of the matter. You need to evaluate your heart with regard to what you think you you have or what you think you are doing. I do love this verse in the sense where it says, Jesus looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him. Another great reminder for us when we evangelize other people, do we have a love for them? Jesus here is compassionately trying to tell this young man um, that, that he needs to understand salvation, that he needs to understand the things of his heart, that salvation is going to cost him something. And that's important for us as we think about our own lives or the lives of those that we're evangelizing. It's going to cost them something. It's going to cost us something. It costs people different things in different ways, but it will cost us something. And Jesus is so compassionate here. I mean, it's, it's admirable. It's wonderful to see, and that's the, that's the Savior that we serve, this gracious, compassionate Savior who lovingly exposes all of these things in our life. Again, he's trying to get this young man to understand that salvation will cost him, cost him something. 
It's a way for Jesus to graciously challenge his self-proclaimed righteousness, and he's doing that by going after what this young man values most. That's why he's telling them, telling him to sell everything and give it to the poor. Jesus is really challenging the young man's idea of what it means to be fully devoted to God. It's really like saying to this young man, if you want eternal life, then this is what it's going to cost you. Count the cost. Have we counted the cost? Have we counted the cost of what it means to serve Jesus Christ? Makes me think of Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. The way to life is narrow. That narrow way doesn't permit you to bring all kinds of baggage along. Many people have talked about that in in the sense of going through a turnstile. Uh, You don't go through a turnstile carrying all kinds of baggage. It doesn't work. Right? And that's why Jesus is going after what this young man values. That's what we have to think about in our service or our faith before Christ. Are we willing to give up all of these things that are so important to us in this life, but in reality they mean nothing in the heavenly perspective? Are we willing to give those things up? Well, back to verse 21, where it says, One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Jesus is challenging this young man with what he is worshiping. What he is worshiping. And that brings us to question number five. What or who are you worshiping? Verse 22. But at these words he was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. I do have to say here that uh, what we worship is not just limited to possessions. Um, there are many people who worship relationships and are unwilling to give those relationships up uh, for the cause of Christ. We have to be mindful of those things as well. But here, this young man, it's all about what he owns. And certainly, what we see here is quite a change in attitude from when this young man first approached Christ. There's a stark contrast. He's eager at first, but here he is now saddened and grieved. Why is he saddened and grieved at what Christ has asked him to do? Well, first, he's saddened because he's not getting his way. He wants Jesus to tell him, this is just the one thing you need to do, something very simple, and you're in. Many people are the same way. We want something simple we can do, We want something simple we can do and maintain or hang on to the life we currently have. And we think that somehow God is going to bless that. Somehow we can continue to live the life we want to live. That's kind of the idea of uh, being saved in your sin instead of being saved from your sin. 
very, very popular attitude, certainly in America, but something we have to be mindful of. So he's not getting his way, right? He's, he's confronted with the reality that his wealth and status are not enough. He can't buy his way into heaven. The kicker in what we see in verse 22 there is, um, uh, or excuse me, in 21, as after Jesus tells him to sell all those things and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, that last part, and come follow me. Even if he does what Jesus says in the sense of giving up everything, selling it all, giving it to the poor, he still has to do one thing he's not willing to do, and that's to follow Christ. Do whatever it is that I am asking you to do, which really rings of Luke 9.23. If anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. That really is this call. You could rephrase that and say, you want to follow me? Uh, that's what Jesus is saying. You want to follow me? Okay. You need to deny everything about what you want to do. Every interest you have, whatever that might be, you need to get rid of all of that. And then you need to come and follow me and be willing to die for me. If you're willing to do that, yeah, come on along. Right? That's not the call of kind of modern day evangelism, is it? But that's what Jesus is asking him to do. And that's something he is not willing to do. So first, he doesn't get his way. Secondly, and maybe most importantly, his response here or the way he responds to what Jesus is asking him to do, it is clear from his response that he is a violator of the law. He hasn't kept the law. He's violating it. His refusal to give up all of his possessions shows that he does not love God and he certainly does not love his neighbor. Jesus started out by basically asking him to keep the second half of the law. And he boldly proclaimed that he's done that. He's done that his entire life. But now what Jesus has asked him to do is clear that what he said was a lie. And he's confronted with that. He's confronted with the reality that he has not only broken the second half of the law, he's breaking the first half of the law as well. He is confronted, again, with his lie, something he does not want to do. The third reason he's responding the way that he's responding, it really goes hand in hand with the second reason, is that it becomes very clear what he truly worships, what he wants to worship. He doesn't want to worship God. He worships his wealth. He's tied to the things of the world. He wants to serve self and not God. And that's something we have to evaluate in our own lives. Do we want to serve God or are we always looking to serve ourselves? Matthew 6.24, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in wealth. And that's exactly what this young man is trying to do. This is good for us to think about. Have we really renounced the things of this world or are we trying to serve two masters? 
What are we worshiping? Are we prepared to give up everything to follow Christ? If the answer is no, then the answer to our next question will be no as well. The next question being, do you understand and appreciate the transaction of salvation? Verses 23 to 27. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, With people it is impossible, but with God for but not with God excuse me, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. As we read those passages, we have to be mindful that Jesus is not saying that rich people cannot be saved. He's not saying that. And some people uh, distort what he says there and really say that, that if a person is wealthy, they uh, are outside the grace of God or they'll, they'll never be afforded the grace of God, and that's simply not true. He's just indicating that uh, something that should be very straightforward, and that really is uh, 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 the indication of wealth can be a big hurdle to someone in uh, being saved. People who are wealthy are self-reliant. They think they have it made. In fact, they think that they are right with God. Unfortunately, they're devoted to keeping things. They're, they're devoted to keeping what they have. And again, many people love their things. And it really goes back to a, um, an old Middle Eastern idea. If you have a lot of things, if you have a great job, you make a lot of money, you have a lot of possessions, that is an indication that you have the favor of God. And that is just not true. It's not true. All we have to do is look at the story of Job and understand that that's just simply not true. So he's not saying that to his disciples. He's not implying that at all. Uh, to his disciples. But he is telling them that that is uh, a hurdle or can be a hurdle. We think about in 1 John 2, 15 and 16, do not love the world nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And really pay attention to what it says in verse 16 there, for all that is in the world. Those are the only things the world has to offer us. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. I mean, just think about that for a minute. Is that what people are willing to give up their salvation for? Those three things? Well, that's what it comes down to many times. What is Jesus teaching his disciples here in these verses? It has, again, to do with this misguided idea that the rich are blessed by God and have the favor of God and that the poor are cursed by God and do not have the favor of God. The idea was that rich people have an easier time getting into heaven. 
There, therein lies the stumbling block for the disciples. That was their mindset. Rich people have the favor of God. Uh, they're on their way to heaven. They're going to be there. Poor people, those that don't have anything, they're actually cursed by God. There's something wrong with their relationship with God. And that's why the disciples have a really hard time getting what Christ is saying here, because that is their mindset. And that's why Jesus moves on and he says what he says in verse 25. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And that would have completely flipped everything that was going on in the the, the minds of the disciples. What he says there, he is saying literally. I know there's a common teaching that goes around in the evangelical world that that somehow is just a metaphorical thing, and he's talking about some other thing um, with regard to the walls of Jerusalem and all that. No, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about exactly what he says. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter heaven. And again, that's why this is so mind-boggling to the disciples. Here's the key that, that we need to understand in, in verse 27. Looking at them, Jesus said, With people it is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. The key we need to understand here is that a person cannot do anything to earn their salvation. All that was said before that is really just the culmination here that Jesus is explaining to his disciples that you cannot earn salvation. Salvation is an act of God. Pure and simple. It's an act of God. Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. It starts out there, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Dead is dead. A dead person can't respond to anything. A dead man, a dead person has no propensity to Christ whatsoever. A dead man has no propensity to the things of God whatsoever. And that's why it takes an act of God to transform that person from dead to life. That's why we see in John 3, verses 3 and 5, verse 3, Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Verse 5, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Clearly, that happens via an act of God. Not something we do, it's an act of God. Man cannot change this. Man cannot change his status. But God can. Do we understand this, uh, this, this action here? Do we understand the concept that's going on here? Do we understand that God is the only one that can do that? Do we appreciate that God is the only one that can do that? Or do we try to justify our standing before God just like the disciples do? And that brings us to question seven. Do you remind Jesus of what you've done? This is what the disciples do in verse 28. Peter began to say to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. Peter, concerned, naturally concerned about what's going on. (laughs) Jesus has just laid it out pretty tough. Uh, It's upset everything they think as, as far as 
a person's relationship with the Lord and whether a person is saved or not, or how does a person get saved, Peter is rightfully concerned. And he probably goes to the same place all of us would go. <laughs> we've, we've done this, right? We've done these things. He reminds Jesus of what he and the other disciples have done. And again, to their credit, they have done what he said. They did leave everything to follow Christ. But if the transaction of salvation is an act of God alone, then what they had done doesn't mean anything. And they're coming to grips with that. They're coming to grips with that. It really is something I don't think they completely understand until after Pentecost. I mean, that's just my opinion. But I don't think they understand it fully until after Pentecost. Again, it's this idea that salvation, this salvation transaction is an act of God. Do we understand that or do we remind Christ of the things that we have done in order to justify our salvation? It's good here to be remindful of what we see in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, Why do you boast as if you had not received it? That's a great thing for us, a great verse to to think about with regard to our salvation. We've done nothing to earn it. There's no reason we should boast about having it. We're going to boast. We're going to boast in Christ, but we're not, not going to boast about something we have done. Whatever we have, including our salvation, it is a gift of God's grace, and that includes all things even things we don't think we should get or things that we don't think we deserve, which brings us to question eight. Are you willing to accept all that salvation brings in this life? Verses 29 and 30. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mothers or fathers or children or farms for my sake or for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. Notice how Christ kind of slips that one in there, right? We're tracking with him, but that in verse 30, but he will receive a hundred times as much now in this present age. I like that one. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children. We all can say amen to that. And farms. And we can say amen to that. And then the last one, along with persecutions. (laughs) That's where the tone drops a little bit. We don't like that one so much. But that is part of what comes with being saved in this life. He's just being honest with his disciples about what is ahead. But he softens the blow with the way he ends it, right? And in the age to come, eternal life. All of those things are great. Persecutions, not so much. I mean, that's what we think. But it's all moving towards something else. And that something else is eternal life. We have to be mindful of that as we think about what it is that comes to us in this life. And we think we need to think about that as we ask ourselves that question, are you willing to accept all that salvation brings in this life? 
Many people love those first few things. The persecutions, they're just not willing to deal with any of that. And that's why Christ is clarifying all of this. He certainly affirms what Peter has said, but he takes it to a whole other level when he mentions the result of all of those things, eternal life. It is for those who have left all for Jesus' sake and the gospel's sake. That is something that we need to be mindful of as we think about accepting all of the things that salvation brings. And certainly we we should highlight or emphasize some of the things that are said there. Certainly in uh, verse 30, notice it says, He will receive. Uh, Again, that's part of being fully devoted to Christ. Um, uh, Those are guarantees. Those are promises by Christ himself. What a wonderful thing to, to dwell on. But along with the persecutions, again, that thing that lowers the tone a little bit, we need to understand that because of those things, uh, we're not going to have our best life now. Our best life is to come. And people that tell us or try to explain people in evangelism that you're going to have your best life now, uh, that is the wrong thing to say. Because we don't know what's in store for them, especially with the persecutions aspect. We have no idea what they're going to have to go through in this life. We just don't know. And some of those things can be horrible things. Now, those things the Lord uses to grow people, but certainly we have to be careful in in, uh, understanding what could happen with someone who is a follower of Christ, who, who actually is born again. But if we have the heavenly perspective then that keeps us going. That gets us to understand what is really happening with this transaction of salvation. And certainly that brings us to the last question. Do you have the heavenly perspective on salvation? Really, you go back to uh, verse 31 there is really what it's tied to. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Really, if you want to have a little bit more fuller understanding of that verse, I just refer you back to the, the sermon that Pastor Kirk did back in July. I think it was July 9th. He touched on this when he was talking about the, the laborers in the vineyard from Matthew 20. Uh, he, he points all this out in there, and he obviously does a great job in laying that out. But certainly you can go back and listen to that. But one of the things that Pastor Kirk mentioned there with regard to verse 31 and how this applies or how we should understand this is that God is sovereign in salvation. That is the heavenly perspective on salvation. God is sovereign in all of this. And we don't understand all of the things that go on. We don't need to understand all the things that are going on. We just need to know that God is sovereign. He's in control. All these things are moving forward in a way that God has, uh, God is making happen. And we can trust him in that thing. Salvation is God's to give and not for us to demand. God is sovereign. That is the heavenly perspective in these things. We need to put away the wisdom of the world and we need to think and act with a heavenly perspective, with a biblical mindset. And that's what really comes out in verse 31 there. And I'll end with this uh, little commentary on Mark 10.31. What Jesus is teaching here is this. There will be many surprises in heaven. 
Heaven's value system is far different from earth's value system. Those who are esteemed and respected in this world, like the rich young ruler, may be frowned upon by God. The opposite is also true. Those who are despised and rejected in this world, like the disciples, may in fact be rewarded by God. Don't get caught up in the world's way of ranking things. It's too prone to err. Those who are first in the opinion of others, or first in their own opinion, may be surprised to learn on Judgment Day they are last in God's opinion. Is that our perspective? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the story of the rich young ruler and all the questions that it brings, questions concerning our conversion, questions concerning our salvation. May we think on these things that you have given to us in the scriptures that we might rightly evaluate whether or not we are followers of Jesus Christ. Certainly it's my prayer, Lord, that if these questions have poked at the heart of some, that um, they are somewhat uh, uncomfortable with those questions, maybe the way they answer, that you would continue to work on their hearts and that they would come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. For those that are saved, may we think about these questions in the way that we do evangelism. We're very eager to get someone to say a prayer without presenting the reality of the scriptures and what it means to follow Christ. May that be an encouragement for us as we move forward. And we ask all those things in Christ's name. Amen.